0: gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast we have got an unbelievable treat for you today if you pay attention you may even change the way in which you see the world today we're here with simon simon i don't know a whole lot about your background so would you be so kind as to please introduce yourself to the listening audience
1: yeah thank you thank you i will um so, my name is Simon. Uh, I have a background in molecular microbiology uh, and was in the tract of like biology bachelor's, master's and then doing a PhD and very, uh, let's say, science focused. And during that process, I became more and more interested in uh more macro scale kind of things instead of the micro. So uh, I got very much into uh, philosophy and um, sort of system science and these kind of things. And for the past couple of years, I've been reading a lot on these subjects. I'm also a uh, uh, nature coach. Uh, I'm interested in uh, coaching, helping people uh, specifically cope with uh, for instance, climate anxiety, these kind of things. Um, and also, I'm a big uh, follower and interest in uh, the psychedelic field. So both as a sort of first-hand user, but also from a scientific background and from a coaching background. So I guess that's a broad description.
0: That's a, you know, it just goes to show why we have so much in common. I think that we have a lot of similar beliefs and, you know, we're both avid readers and, Psychedelics are such an incredible movement right now, and I really love the way when one uses psychedelics, you can fundamentally change the way you see the world, whether it's through concepts or colors or ideas. I think it just brings to the forefront a new lens with which you can discern what's happening around you. And so, Simon and I are here today. We got another friend, Ranga, that'll be jumping in shortly for those who know Ranga, and we wanted to talk a little bit about. Uh, There's a fascinating author named Ian McGilchrist. He wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary. He's also wrote a new book called The Matter with Things. And it talks about the way we perceive the world, sort of the left brain, right brain. And the left brain is sort of this analytic scalpel that is there for us to break things down and get knowledge from. But it also forces us to see the world in like a mechanistic way, almost like a you know, like a machine and like we provide meaning and that's what it is. And, you know, maybe it's sort of like the, the Jesus God is a potter, like the, the ceramic model of the universe. And then we have this right part of the brain where we, we can see the concepts. We can see the irony and we can see some things like that, but I want to pass it off to Simon here to Maybe you can help set up a little bit more on that, on that little platform that I built.
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah, I, I think that you already more or less set the stage. Uh, what I really like is McGilchrist uses this comparison often. He says um, the right hemisphere presents, so as a, as in a verb, so the right hemisphere deals with whatever is present in the moment, and the left hemisphere re presents, so represents, oh, but it's okay. also re presents. So what the left hemisphere does is deal with cut pieces of information from the present and makes an image of that and analyzes the image. And it's also analysis. It's breaking up into smaller parts. It includes the word lysis. So it's breaking up. And so the left hemisphere, by definition, deals with not what is present, but is re-presented. So it, makes an, it has to make images of things or so concepts, language um literally like pictures this is also the place where we built uh, uh well large theories and different constructs and all these kind of things and well the right hemisphere does well virtually all the other things let's say so is uh, is in tune with the body is in tune with the outside world and a lot of the problems that i think what I gilkut writes about in his book Got it here. Nice. Um, he talks about the master and his emissary, talking about two hemispheres. And one is the master hemisphere, which is the right hemisphere, and the other is the emissary, the left hemisphere. And so, in this, this comparison, he uses, uh, and he probably people should look him up. He's very good at explaining these things, but uh, I'll, I'll attempt or make an attempt. Um, he uses the allegory of a um, uh, so let's say there's there's a there's a, a kingdom and the king rules the kingdom and he is he's a benevolent leader he oversees everything but as his kingdom is growing and growing he cannot be everywhere at the same time so then he appoints uh, a right hand an emissary and he sends him off to really do the work in the field or on the location. Uh, But the king knows what's best for the entire kingdom. But the emissary knows for that specific spot where he is, He will know in detail what is going on. And he says that in a right relationship, the emissary knows that the the king has the master has this overview. But in the worst case, and then he goes into this, uh, the emissary sort of supplants the master and thinks he knows everything. But if you have then an emissary that only knows about the details in charge of an entire kingdom, then things go awry.
0: Yeah, that's really well put. I I like that. And for those of us listening, think about the way the world is going right now. It kind of seems like we've gotten away from this master plan. You know, it kind of seems and you could break that down to an individual level. If you think about the way you maybe rationalize things, you know, you look at how. Well, I'm just doing this now because of this thing. It's like sometimes you can see yourself as that emissary. And instead of following what's true, what's what the bigger plan is, you get caught in the minutiae, caught in these little details like that. And so I, I I think it's also something that you can see, you know, not only is it something that we're taught in popular science and schools and a lot of the popular people on the Internet, but it's. It just seems like this mechan this idea of mechanistic thinking is almost become like a plague. like the emissary has gotten so big that it is trying to put the king away in the tower for a long time. And you know I, yeah. I think with these wars and you know the the short the very short like attention span and this idea of us being ones and zeros and how we're kind of moving into this world of non-emotional sort of mechanism like it just seems like cancer to me what what do you think simon
1: yeah uh, that's that's for sure uh it's also the last chapter of the master and the emissary he more or less starts it with um what would the left hemisphere world look like and then he takes about 50 pages describing our world um and by now so this book came out in 2008 and McGilchrist has been quite vocal already in a, several of several of his interviews and now in his latest book the matter of things that we're living indeed in a world where the master has been supplanted by the emissary and this is a big driver of this analytics based world and also this like i just mentioned and what he mentions in the book is the left hemisphere deals with um representation so it deals with Symbols, uh, language. So never with the real thing. It deals with uh, representation and abstraction of the thing. So it is also limited to thought, and thought cannot capture, never can capture the full truth, let's say, or the full reality. So we're living in a world, in a bureaucratic dream world, let's say. And the more and more we go into these, uh, yeah data-driven science driven or data science driven realities i think the more and more we lose that sense of uh, well reality or the sense of, of aliveness because that's also the case the left hemisphere deals with images and images are in this case are always dead it's never the the living thing so the left hemisphere deals with dead things and if we let that run our society, we're yeah. creating a dead society.
0: Yeah. It's it's so it rings true in so many ways to me. You know, and it, when I look at I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this into like the psychedelic realm a little bit. You yeah. know, whenever I find myself on like a, a, a large dose of mushrooms or LSD or something like that, it's so amazing what happens if you just look up into the night sky. Or if you find yourself in your garden and you see like these trees breathing, you know, or, Mm. you know, I I remember a while back I was sitting out in my garden and I just, I remember staring at like this, uh, I have this vine and I I was just so mesmerized by this flower that had bloomed on there. And you start thinking like, wow, that flower opens up at just the right angle to catch this maximum sunlight at like 4 PM. Like you start thinking to yourself, like that's, that's not that's by design and you start thinking well i wonder what do i do things that are perfectly in balance with that and like it just it's unbelievable how you can begin to think in a way that is holistic instead of mechanistic you know there there doesn't need to be a formula that's like okay a squared plus b squared is c squared and then we you know we take all this stuff over here and then we apply meaning to it and that's what it is like that's a good way to explain it but mm-hmm. you're not, you're only explaining a, a fragment of it. And that gets us back to this representation of it. So me using that mathematical formula or me using a formula like that is me representing it in a way. But when I'm on a high dose of mushrooms, I'm taking in that information in such a different way. And it's yeah. it's I can understand it versus it being <clears throat> represented. You know, yeah. I'm wondering, do you do you have like a do you find it similar on, on psychedelics or do you find yourself in situations like that?
1: oh yeah for sure for sure no um i think also a um i i, I do a sort of micro dosing practice or right. let's call it mini dosing um and i find it incredibly helpful together with mindfulness with meditation and these yeah. kind of things to yeah. really see where for me the emissaries having control instead of the master let's say mm-hmm. so i'm more mindful or when I'm mindful I think less and when I think more I'm less mindful and that's already like a very simple way of tuning in like okay where am I at the moment? and with with um, well with the psychedelic experience yes and these these uh, frames that we use to capture things yes. or to, to look at things these just drop and then you start really seeing things seeing uh, with a capital I would say yeah and it just talks to you differently like reality unfolds differently and you're you' um, yeah you're seeing with more than just your eyes I would say and and because you're dropping those frames because you're it, that's that's also part of my journey as yes, because my background is in like uh, certain reductionistic materialistic right. science and very mechanistic doing microbiology genetics and all these things so you're constantly, it's difficult to find the wonder behind the th- what you're actually studying is like you're studying live bacteria and I was studying horizontal gene transfer which is um, like like mating between bacteria so they give each other little genetic packages and all these kind of things like it's even with as simple as simple it's not simple at all <laughs> even with a simple of a flower can already induce so much wonder yeah. Let alone uh, on a molecular scale, whatever all this stuff is happening, and the analytical frame, so this emissary frame, really has a power of making it normal or making it uh, sort of now. Now we're doing serious science, and, uh, and all the joy goes out of it. So yeah,
0: yeah, it, like that. That's super. That's that's really interesting to me, and I'm glad you brought it up. Because in some ways, I think what is is illustrating is this idea of bringing philosophy back into science. And I'm glad that you brought up the world of wonder because how many kids or I, I know myself, how many children or even adults that go to college or work, I don't care if you're 60 right now, when you're learning something, how much of that wonder is just drained from the structure of learning? this beauty of it, you know, it's, it's just put into this dry area where we will go and learn how to do, (laughs) Mm. you know, it's just stripped out of there. But when you start realizing it on a a bigger scale and you start seeing the magic, the philosophy in it, the concepts of it, and you can, you can use the whole brain, it seems to me, And I'm just using that loosely. Like it brings that magic back. You know, I'm wondering like how much of that, when when I look at schooling today, especially in the United States, it saddens me to see so many people graduating with these huge debts, and they go out into the world and they don't even—they're not even able to apply what they learned. And maybe no. it's because of this analytical thinking. It's this—I don't know if that's the right definition, but are, am I making sense there? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. And you'll you'll really like the matter with things. I can't wait because to McGilchrist up. goes into these kind of things. So he has a chapter called "Institutional Science and in Truth." and i was really enjoying reading it because i'm just finishing up on the phd and i was really frustrated with a lot of like how academic life is structured and papers and stuff and he really goes into it it's great he for instance i had a small quote yeah about scientific articles um he's, he's talking to make it brief he's talking about how scientific uh, academic articles have become more and more unreadable the last twenty to thirty years. While well, if you would read a scientific article from the beginning of last century, if you're reasonably educated, you can read it. So without a specialistic background. And then he goes into so how the situation is now. Increasingly, the heavily uh, acronymic jargon of research papers seems to me to present an almost impenetrable barrier to anyone other than the most highly specialized reader. And even then, if they are to get anything out of the exercise, they must have a huge capacity to tolerate boredom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so true.
1: But yeah, and it, and it is. So, so, especially, so he also goes into like biology, so the science of life. And that's literally what biology is it's the science of life. And I'm a, a trained molecular biologist. And the first thing that we do when we study life is kill it. So we kill life and then we analyze it so we break it up in pieces so that already says more than enough for me like what is the the emissary's world what does it look like this this analytical view because it's lysis so you have to break it up into parts and what does this part do and uh, anatomize it so it's just it's really a shame that education uh, under this paradigm is like this and I think there is a movement to uh, to go more into a sort of sort of holistic view or a different it really needs a different worldview in order for us to get there. And I think what McGilchrist is doing is contributing to get, how to get there to this different worldview.
0: Yeah, I might even say pioneering the way, you know because I mm. think so many people read that book and were like, it all makes sense now. Like it's, I've only spoken to you and maybe a couple other people personally, but I read some stuff on different forums and stuff. And you can see some really good um, analysis of the book. And some of the analysis like, Oh, after I read this, everything began to make more sense to me. Or after I read this, I begin to see things different. And, you know, I, I think that some of us have been on this mission where we've begun, begun to see things different. But then when we read that, we're like, Oh, that's, that's what it is, you know? And, I, I, I can kind of see it in the world of science and education, and and all around us. I think it permeates it, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. This idea of specialization, like we've Mm. gotten so specialized in medicine, in science, even even in warehouses, like people have specialist jobs, and we've gotten so far away from each other. It's almost like we don't even speak the same language. Like you got to go to a specialist for your foot. You have to go to a specialist if you want a certain little part made for a machine yeah. and when you when you get that far specialized it's almost as if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing you know and it's just back to the master and the emissary it's you can yeah. see it everywhere once you begin looking
1: at it yes for sure for sure and that's a very good point i also want to get uh you mentioned that before oh hey
2: hello hey hello, how hey.
1: hey, how are you
0: i'm fantastic Ronga, have you met simon before
2: no, I have not met him before.
0: Simon, this is Ranga. Ranga, this is Simon. Nice to meet you. <laughs> now you have. Raga, I'm going to fill you in just a little bit. We, we are going just... We're blowing up our minds right now. I'm so stoked you're here. Thank you for being here. We Thanks, are going man. into this... We're going into the ideas of the way in which the left brain sees the world and the right brain sees the world. It's sort of like this dichotomy between specialization and seeing the world through psychedelics. You know how like when you... When you see psychedelics, if you see the plant bloom and the flower comes out at like a 45 degree angle to catch the 12 o'clock sun, it's like this master plan thing. And we're talking about like, why is it that in science today, we don't allow the magic to be born? Simon brought up this point about how um, the first, if you're going to study life in in a lab, the first thing you have to do is kill it, you know? And so (laughs) I just wanted to kind of give you the, the breakdown right there. And then Simon was just about to fill us in on this idea of specialization a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, and
1: about how the Moss and the Emissary is so yes. uh, such a useful book in this case, because the 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 frame that he um, uh, well that he that he brings and what you can uh, incorporate for yourself is it it works on a personal level, so you you can use it as a means of studying the self. Let's say. And it works on this larger scale, in which you can see these bigger patterns of of how the analytic worldview or how the left hemisphere sort of a major guideline, but also corrupting most of our institutions and how yeah the way own society how it's shaped is making it more and more a sort of dead society. But on a personal note, I I really uh, found it incredibly useful to start thinking, or uh, as a guide to start thinking about my own thoughts. Content or the way on how I'm seeing things. So it's like when is it clearly left hemispherical thinking, and when it's more embodied right hemisphere. And to put a halt on it when it's clearly a lot of left hemispherical babbling.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna blow this up into the macro right now. So when we talk about left hemisphere and right hemisphere, you know, isn't it weird that we have like different hemispheres of the earth, and we have different ideas about the East and western religions? I want to ask you this as someone who has been between who's, who has got to live firsthand in these different parts of the world and these different ideologies. Do you think that maybe the Eastern thought of spirituality is a more, more holistic look at spirituality versus the Western look at spirituality?
2: Yes. You know me, uh, where I'll start the answer for this part, it's just that whatever uh, notions we have of the East, it's true of an outdated tradition, right? I just returned from India. I was there for a month. So whatever we talk about and we think about East, that is not currently the case. Because they are approaching towards the Western mindset, right? Yeah um so relatively i see that approaching the opposite side other than spirituality because i feel like whatever we call the western mindset doesn't have to be the western people or a particular country it's just having <coughs> had you know um good amount of resources and stuff and being able to go from a developing nation to a fully developed nation and what is left what do you do right uh, the question comes and most of the things people do is accumulate materialists materials. And this materialistic mindset is what I believe what people quote as West when I think about it. So yes. right now, uh, the Eastern parts are approaching towards that, right? So whatever yes. they add, they have lost, even, even the meditation practices that they add, it's, it's lost. I go to temples. It's more of a, you know, a forced ritual and a belief rather than the actual practice, but yes, uh, if we go back to that particular time when these things originated I'm sure the same things originated in this side also the native people in the west would have had these um, you know traditions and rituals that add them uh, one with the divine which has not passed down when it was uh, you know their lands were taken away from them right but on the eastern side even though such occupations happened it didn't you know completely get lost They preserved these traditions so, that is the name for it. That's all. That's the difference I see. Um, but coming back to your question. Yes, there is. A,
1: uh,
2: there is. A, can 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 you repeat your question one more time with respect <laughs> to what you want from the Eastern thing?
0: Yeah, I,
2: I think I was get driving to the
0: point of and I'll add on to what you said while I say the question again. You know, it, it seems to me that the Western idea of spirituality is much more mechanistic and materialistic. And at least in my mind, the Eastern ideas of spirituality seem to be something that celebrated the entire the entirety of it, not just a mechanistic look at it. So more of a humanistic, more of a collective sort of a we're we don't come into this world. You come out of it. You know, you're all, it's a very complex idea of moving parts and you're part of this huge thing. And you're all there together where in the world of the Western mindset, it seems like you're a rugged individual and you like the ceramic model of the vertebrae. You're a potter. God made you and you must enforce
2: your will and build the world around you. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's true. I have to disagree that these established concepts of how it is, is not actually helping at the individual level, right? Because for me, yeah, even though I was born in India with these concepts that, you know, even though they don't truly believe it, they kind of tell you there is no individual self, you know, you're part of this one thing. There are stories like this that play to you, but you do not have this realization within you, right? And you do not have the practices that go along with it. So for me, When I came to the West, this whatever you called as uh, forcing the idea towards rugged individualism, that is what led me to that. Because Mm. the opportunity to, you know, uh, be your own individual is the opportunity to also ask, like, what am I without assuming it? Of course, like most times we just assume that I am this or that. But if you're able to, you know, add the area where, yeah, you are an individual and you get to do whatever you want, So you stay in a room, locked up in a room. You ask the question. So that was a gateway for me to realizing that. So in that way, right, like I think the thing what Simon is talking about also, it's kind of one is not better than the other or one is not, um, how do you say, it's all time-based. It's like the waves moving across the water, right? You know, you close your eyes and see the somewhere else it's it's just it's always changing it's moving from here to that to here to there and sometimes one is better than the other based on what time you're at you know and uh collectively it might be a bad thing to be caught up in a society and indiv- being an individual might be a better thing and sometimes being an individual might be you know uh stupid you might get stoned and you might be hanged in the board. so it depends on the time you're born in
0: <laughs> that's it simon what do you think about that what would you add to that
1: Nice. No, I, I really like uh, like those points you bring up, Bangor. Uh, and it also f- feels very, very true in that sense that the, the uh, specifically what you mentioned about um, even though you, if you grow up in a culture that is um, sort of rich with a sort of collectivist tradition or not collectivist, that's the wrong word, but a more holistic uh, tradition, um, it's not enough that the language is there or the Cultural background is there. It's also should be incorporated in daily life. So the rituals should be there, Mm. and then if you explain like okay, and then you go, you work in the West or you live in the West, we have all the rituals that enforce our worldview, which is how we structure our life, which is work, uh, just the whole thing. So all the 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 yeah the 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 rituals and the the action that goes with it. Are there and while for uh, and it's more easy let's say uh, uh while for this more holistic or this more integral worldview let's say the uh that embodied experience yeah to do that you need uh quiet uh you need the time to reflect spend time in nature uh in community you need all these these way more by now more difficult to obtain things so yeah no, i found it interesting and also to get back on the point that you mentioned uh, in the end it, it's indeed um these are two extremes and that's also what McGilchrist goes in in his book because it sounds like the left hemisphere is the bad hemisphere well, actually it's about the balance between the two because they're both vital uh, almost any animal has this this um, specialization is a lateralization of the two hemispheres mm, good point and it has a super important function because this this narrow uh this scalpel as you uh, you put it uh, way of seeing things is also incredibly uh, necessary to have because then we can discern things uh, it's just that if that is the major way of seeing things yeah then it starts hampering with this the, being able to see the large picture and if we then create a society where uh we focus on being experts in things, but not generalists. And you know, we start to lose the big picture and who's then left to see the big picture ex- anyway. So yeah, those those are just some things that's
0: uh, is, my, That's awesome. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that this is what education is lacking. It seems to me that in schools, like we've already spoken about the the left and the right and eastern and western. It seems like people when they go to learn something, they learn one way or the other way. They learn to be analytical or they learn to be conceptual. They but I I like what you said, Simon. Like in schools we should be teaching exactly what you said. Hey, we think in our mind we have this way to analyze things and then this other way to conceptualize or or we, we can use both parts of our brain. We can use the scalpel and we can use the, the magnifying glass over here. And what we should do, we should be teaching kids. Yes, like ask a question like, what do you see here? And they could they could point out, well, I see a dead cat. Okay, why is the cat dead? And then you, we could be teaching people how to use both hemispheres of their brain in, in conjunction with each other instead of just analyzing it, instead of just being the artist you know, we should be teaching people how to use both sides and integrate it. And it kind of yeah. seems like that's where we're moving to. But I, I don't see any schools teaching that particular idea of paying attention. I guess you could break it down to paying attention, right? Do you pay attention in this way or do you pay attention yeah. in this way? Ranga, could you think of some ways we could integrate this type of thinking into like a like an exercise?
2: <laughs> Before, uh, yeah, we can talk about that. When, when you mentioned school, it was funny. I just saw a meme, right, of how education is kind of outdated in this aspect. And, uh, you know, in schools, they ask you to write uh, detailed essays for five pages, yep. right? And in the real world, uh, you convince me in seven seconds or you lose me. Right? You do not need <laughs> skills that, you know, you always think there is always time to write five pages. That's, that's not it. So, yeah, we got we to gotta find the balance between that. Coming, coming back to practice, I, I do not know a practice that, because for, for me, anything that is given from outside is going to become an enforcement, right? So it's like this. I think um, the older people, like the older generation, the books that got transmitted, right, the knowledge in that, most of it points towards the fact that you cannot clearly tell them to go straight. So you gotta guide them, you know, around the horizon. They can't look at straight at the target, so you point them a little off the center and just hope they'll reach there. You know, it's it's that's how I see it. Because the moment you tell them this is where they should go, there is an innate re- uh, rebelliousness in each one of us, right? And uh, I don't think we will do it. <laughs> so anything that talks about balance cannot come during the school days. I think having the extremities and letting them fight that out for themselves. Is um is something, it's naturally gonna happen. But as uh, Simon was saying, you know, the I agree that the Western side also has its set of rituals, that are going to work, and you know, consumption style, and so on. But um, you know, what one thing could be different? What Simon said was like the space to be self-reflective, right? I I think that's that's the thing we can start incorporate slowly everywhere. Have the space, right? right? We we are not uh, revisiting. The term boredom enough right uh, i i truly believe there is nothing boring in this world so mm. i think growing up kids should start having that more like having that yeah. to revisit that and see it for themselves that there is nothing boring about it once once they have it i think that's the opposite of uh, paying attention right boredom because you're distracted somewhere so after after that you're gonna pay attention to whatever it that is and then you know, you can point to whatever, and you can see that they'll be pointing attention, and yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Simon, what what do you
0: think?
1: Nice, I like that a lot. Oh, I'm right? also thinking about um, we. Yeah, that's the, that's part of quiet contemplation. I think that's one of the biggest lux- luxuries we uh, we can have in modern life. We all have like a, an attention draining <laughs> device. Most of us have. <laughs> uh, it's like a parasite um and getting to the space where you're actually bored is becoming rare because um, watching uh, youtube or uh, whatever social media feeds you have that is a sort of patch on boredom so you're actually bored but you're getting filled while sitting just sitting in contemplation or sitting outside or it doesn't matter and allowing yourself to be bored that's the best inducer of actual creativity or of insight or of you might surprise yourself with interesting thoughts or you might notice a, a type of bird you've never seen before or, oh look how beautiful the grass is or whatever so i, I really like that point so, yeah
0: yeah that is beautiful eh? and it brings me to this idea of um consumption versus contemplation you know you talk about when you're bored and you're you're watching youtube you're consuming versus contemplating And it seems that in a consumer capitalism, in a consumer society, like there's such a a a pull. There is such a a large amount of money that's and people that are vying for your attention. It's like the uninterrupted presence of the visual that's just constantly. Ranga, Simon, come here. Look at this. Hey, look at this thing. Look over there. Look at that. Look at that. Look at this. You know. And there's no time. There's no time to be like, ah what the hell is that bird doing? What is it eating? You know, or like, is that a caterpillar on that leaf or what kind of plant is this, you know, or what are these ants doing? You know, like there's no more of that because there's billboards and there's a half naked, super hot chick on your phone right now. And she might be saying your name. You don't know. Is that she say my name? I'm not sure, but you know, it's just Mm -hmm. this incredible, Poll for your attention. And I think that this is leading us back into this short-term ideology that Ranga was talking about, like this seven-second clip of boom, 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 boom. So I, I'm wondering, Ranga or Simon, what do you, what this idea of consumerism and consumption, is this something that is kind of making us less contemplative? What do you think, Ranga?
2: 100% I think. <laughs> Because my first um, time for questioning happened right after my uh, university in Canada, right? One of the great things that happened was I didn't have money to waste on. So I graduated. Uh, well, uh, did, you get, did it cut? Yeah, it kind of cut yeah, right I, there. Yeah. OK, sorry. Um, so right after my master's, um, I didn't want to find a job in my field, so I wanted to take time off and you know figure what I wanted to do. So, because of that, I was, you know, doing gig jobs that just paid me rent and food, and I did not have the money to spend on other things, because I, for the first time, realized I don't need much other than food and rent and add a dog and food for him, which was not not at all, you know, a big deal. It was this chunk of money, but because um, I had I was living with roommates who were, you know, in this high-paying job, there is this sense of, um, am I missing out?" Right. But I couldn't push myself to get the high-paying job either. So I was got in this frustrated point in life where I want to do that, but I'm unable to do that. But that's when I was able to ask, like, but why do I need to buy it? Right? I have to go out of my way to do a lot of things to buy it. But that the contemplation happened without me realizing, oh, I'm giving the space and time to think about it. I was I was suffering at that part at that point, right? I was depressed with how my life was going. But the actual question that was happening was. Wait. If I don't need it, should I? Why? Why should I buy it? Right. So yes, it was exactly the opposite side of consumption. I would say. Right. Once you stop consuming, you actually wonder: should I even be consuming it at the first uh, place? Right. <laughs> uh, there was another thing on the terms of this, like um, what I saw was uh, we are so busy that uh, with the idea that if we could do it, we are not asking the question if we should. Mm right i just saw that quote last week and it made a lot of sense yeah we, we're doing a bunch of stuff but yeah we are, we are capable of that but is it necessary we'll never know because once it's done it's um we'll see yep totally yeah, yeah. You think?
1: i think i get that yeah and i like the point that um the situation you more or less created for yourself that induced a lot of friction this friction allowed you to actually start asking these questions. So without that friction, it would have been more difficult to uh, ask these questions. So well, that turned out well, I guess.
2: Yeah. Suffering is grace.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. it's Suffering is almost a clarity too. Like oh, there's a clarity that comes from suffering that you wouldn't have unless you went through those times. You know, one thing that, like one thing that I, I, I wanted to ask you Ranga, is there's a lot of people that probably want to do what you did. Like you went, you got your masters, you had this whole world in front of you. And then you're like, yeah, I, I think I'm going to do this other thing for a little while. I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of courage in there. And I think that there's a lot of truth in there. And I think that there's a lot of critical thinking that needed to be done for you to do that. Like what, what kind of, process was that like was there was there a shift in your thinking that got you to that spot was there like was there one thing that made you go okay well I'm I'm thinking this is what I'm supposed to do but I'm going to do this does that make sense kind of
2: the answer starts with uh, cannabis so (laughs) most people who asked me at that point you know when I was sad and I didn't want to do this they said cannabis is the reason it's spoiling you you should drop it Right. And I was I was guilty about consuming cannabis at the time when I was doing it because what cannabis did to me was show a state of mind, a happiness that wasn't tied to things, not to situations or outcomes and stuff. Right? It, it it is a borderline psychedelic, and I've not been introduced to cyclics yet at this point, right? So but <clears throat> having known that there is a state of happiness that is not tied to things in life, it actually gave me a chance to question. So I was pretty content after having a joint. I was content. I was literally content, and there wasn't anything I was trying to do. And that was the part. So why why should I do it? I am going to live for my happiness. right? So what cannabis showed me was my happiness lied within me. But, But because before that, it was all about that, oh, these set of things that should happen on the outside for me to be happy. Right, and I realized, including my therapist at that point, and other people at that point who were asking me to wean off cannabis were just—they—they—they they, they had the same thing, and they were afraid. They stopped. Uh, it stopped them from living their conceptual life, right? And now they have to take steps, and cannabis is a, a the barrier in their path, right? But what if I don't want to go that side? What if I just turn a little bit to where? you know, these drugs are showing me, right? And it wasn't a bad, and most times I've realized people who are very hard on drugs, they, they're mostly either not, they've not tried it, or it has taken them to a space where they are uncomfortable. And the moment we are uncomfortable, we we tend to, you know, see it as a bad thing and, you know, come back to the spa- space of comfort. But this is where, again, same as suffering, you know, a lot of uncomfortableness inside the head is a good thing it's helping you
0: <laughs> it's so true
2: yes
0: yeah Simon so, mean, what do you like we talk a lot about suffering I, me and Ranga always go, get into this idea of suffering and so too do a lot of people that have gone through a psychedelic adventure or you know I think anybody who is reading Ian McGillchrist has probably gone through some suffering themselves so what's your take on suffering and, and do you want to share any uh, things that maybe have happened that have changed the way you thought about the world you live in, or or see.
1: Nice, good question. Um, yeah, I, <clears throat> I guess during the uh, during when my my PhD contract ended, and then I really had to get into the writing of it. Uh, during that time, um, there was this nagging feeling um, in which I was getting more and more uh, anxious about the state of the world and these kind of things. So instead of focusing my time on writing my own thesis, I spent a lot of time reading up on uh, climate uh, climate systems, on biodiversity collapse, on societal collapse, these kind of things. And that was sort of a way of uh, rapidly deconstructing my worldview, in a sense like, OK, I, was, I had the idea of I was going in science, uh, it was making sense, I'm going to do something useful, biology, blah, blah. And then I got this picture of like, oh, no, the world is is doing something completely different. And it's also looking worse and worse. It's way worse than I thought. And I'm by nature a pessimist. So it it was worse and worse. (laughs) So that kind of got me into this spiral in which I had to really let go of my worldview and sort of grieve. Grief for my own worldview, but also on the same side, um, really allow sort of ecological grieving to occur. I really feel deeply for that. Um, and around that time, I just started reading a lot of different things because when your worldview collapses then you're also open to a lot of new ways of seeing things um, well one of these authors is ian McGilchrist, that helps matched with also practices so uh doing psychedelics uh med- daily meditations going for long nature hikes and i was lucky in that point of time in my life it was also during lockdowns and all these kind of things but i was lucky that i had a lot of free time for myself um and so I could actually spend all this time doing these more holistic things and really yeah, coming to a new way of being. And that also completely changes your priorities. So from that point, I also went to do like a coaching education. I got more serious into uh sort of psychedelics as therapeutics, but also as means of um supporting people in who are in the similar types of processes as in uh, really feeling from the inside like now the world is different than I see it, uh, but not still knowing how to be in that world. So being in the process of transition. So yeah, for sure. And suffering really helps because that gets you to that place. And from that place, you can start building. So yes.
0: That's so awesome. It it reminds me, I I it's so fascinating to me that a lot of the people I talk to have gone through something similar, which is this, this collapse of their worldview. And there's a couple of things that, that I have learned that come out of this. And one of them is it's necessary. In fact, it's mandatory. Like it must happen in order for you to be reborn as the person you are today. And as painful as it can be, probably the more painful the collapse, the more you can learn. If, and when you're ready, you will. And so if I could give one note on this first part to anybody that finds themselves going through a tragedy right now, I would say congratulations. I'm so stoked for you. So stoked this tragedy is happening to you. And I'm not trying to be callous. I'm trying to be caring because it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. And it's going to be glorious. The second part is what an incredible worldview grows out of that collapse is not only this new world anew, but your ability to see people that are in that collapse and to help them. You know, like you said, you've gone – you've begun to go and help these other people through different sorts of – whether it's a psychedelic practice or a nature coach or getting out and helping. It's like it's almost like once this collapse happens to you, now all of a sudden you're adorned with the badge of helpfulness where you can mm. – or you have these new glasses that you can see through this lens of that happened to me. And it just – it just – expands on this idea of us growing together the same way mycelium grows in the ground and looks for other people to connect to. So too do we do that. And like just as above, so below, it seems to me, and it, it just gets back to this idea of this destruction of specialization that I think is is his own sort of worldview collapse. And it's so fascinating me to, like, I'm talking to you guys, and you've had similar experiences. You're in similar pathways and even though i've never met either one of you face to face i feel like we have so much in common it's such an awesome time to get to talk to you guys what do you see this happening more and more to people like is there more and more people beginning to have their own collapse so that the world can be reborn is this a bigger process Is happening all over the world what do you think
1: i can be really brief about it and then i'll give the space to Ranga. yeah to please but um there are more and more reports about increases in uh, general anxiety disorders, depression, burnout, these kind of things. And I think these are all incredibly healthy responses of a body responding to a toxic system. And recently, so there's been a report for in the Netherlands where uh, about one fourth of the people that participate in this survey have some sort of uh, psychiatric disorder uh, linked to these kind of things. So yes there i see more and more people that are going through this and i see statistically there are more and more people that are gearing themselves up for a transition meaning getting into depression and burnout so yes
2: what do you think ranga so simon did you say that uh, your transition happened during covid you were saying something about the lockdown right
1: was it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Just before, so I was already so in the big, uh, late two thousand and nineteen. I had my sort of uh, that it really just fell and then so the, the 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 lockdowns and stuff didn't hurt me too bad because I was already in a cocoon. Let's say.
2: It's yes, that that thing, George, You know, we need more of that lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
2: because of because of COVID, especially like uh, you know, I mean, in in <clears throat> Canada they said. There was a thirty to fifty percent increase in the cases that were reported, you know, uh, with mental health problems. And uh, it's true; we are, we just the lesser the distractions, the more we can be honest with ourselves. The more these, uh, this way I see it, is these emotions are the body's way of communicating with us, right? It doesn't have to be the truth all the time. Just it's it's communicating with us, and we need to be there to listen to it. So most times we are we are lost as uh, Simon was saying. We keep uh, going through the uh, feeds and stuff. You know we are inherently sad and we're just hoping it will go away with quite enough number of spikes. You know, 18 videos is the goal. Once I'm done 18, I think I'll be happy now, right? And so they they keep uh, suppressing these things and once the distraction is cut and that quite happened in COVID. Like most times, in the beginning, so friends I knew they were like, oh man, I don't know when it's gonna end, right? And I, I it didn't um, affect me because as I said, I didn't have money to spend. And when they got closed, I only had like, ah, you guys are in the same boat as mine. You have the money, but you can't spend it anywhere. Right. Online shopping went up, but not physically going to places, any kind of distractions, right? So they, they had to sit at their house and well uh, finally have the chance to confront. And it's also the thing that once we change our perception, once our uh, Whatever view that you know our parents give collapses, and we are, you know, turning towards a new direction. Um, we we meet like-minded people, so I don't know if it yeah. has increased uh, the number has increased or something objectively, but subjectively, yes, it is going to be. You know, we are heading towards a meditation center instead of a strip club, so of course we're gonna see more Buddhas than <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. I so subjectively yes i do feel like i the people i meet it's amazing i i have never thought about you know crossing paths with any any uh, of you know you you too i wouldn't have thought about it like i'd be thinking i have to go to this office you know meet people based on concepts that i had i would limit myself to people yeah. that i think i should meet right that's a prison that's what um, i was having a discussion with my friend who said he wanted to be more s- so socializing more is it at the moment you said that out right you're gonna socialize more that's that's you're not gonna do that you're gonna let go of that idea that i need to go and find people and it just serves you with you know people uh, that you need in your life right now it it even happened in my flight trip like coming back and you know we the, the guy in my next seat uh, he was from amsterdam so he is at psychedelics, and uh, he's been in meditation. He went to India and to travel for two months, and it was cute. He picked up a couple of words in my mother tongue, and I was like, nice. And then we we spent almost—I—I I sleep during the flight usually, and we talked for six hours. And me in my older mindset wouldn't have imagined that to happen, right? Mm. And uh, yeah, it's nice that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very nice. That is amazing.
0: It brings up this other idea that I, as you were speaking about mindset and, you know, worldview and and changing, you know, I've found myself, I would say after COVID, maybe a little bit before, like just understanding and man, like I've learned that if you tell yourself a different story, then you can see the world differently. And it sounds kind of like silly, but it's so profound to me. You know, I remember like just beginning to, I had this, I had this thing happen to me one time where like these cops, they came to my door and I was at work and they came to my door and my, my mother-in-law and my wife were home. And so I'm working, working. And like my phone starts ringing, like just off the hook. Like it rings and I hang up, it rings, it hangs like 10 times and I'm like, oh, this must be an emergency but I didn't recognize the number so I didn't pick it up. And then after the 10th time, my wife called me and I picked it up and she's like, George, is there something you want to tell me? And I'm like, uh, I love you. And I'm like, I, I can tell you this, that someone's blowing up my phone. They've called me like 10 times in a row. She goes, yeah, a bunch of cops just came to, your, to the door. And they said that uh, you're, you have, uh, you've done some things that are really bad and they, they need to talk to you. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And she goes, yeah, here's their card. And she read off the card and they were like from like the FBI. And I'm like, what the hell? And so as I'm talking to my wife, the, the guy, the guy calls, like I see that, that other line that was calling me. I'm like, all right, these people are calling me. I'm going to, I love you, gorgeous. I'm going to, I'm going to answer this phone. So I pick it up I'm like, this is George. And he's like, George, this is special agent Johnson. I, it wasn't, it wasn't Johnson, but it was making that up. Special agent. So-and-so from the FBI. Um, I need to see you immediately. And I'm, I'm, I, I drive a truck for a living. And so I'm like, well, I'm out on my route right now. Um, he's like, how about I come to your work in the morning? And I'm like, that's a horrible idea. You should definitely not come to my work. How about, how about you meet me? I'm like, why do you meet me now? I'm over here at UH on campus. And he's like, okay, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And like, I'm automatically racking my brain. I'm like, dude, what What have I done? Have I done something? I'm, I'm automatically guilty in my mind. Right. And these people were pounding on my door and they're blowing up my phone and I'm like, oh, man, do these guys know I smoke weed? Damn it. I'm like, that's not – they don't care if I smoke weed. That's nothing. I'm like, well, I've been – I bought I bought a lot of these Ted Kaczynski books. I wonder if they think I'm like a serial killer or something. You know, and I'm like, nah, they don't care about that. And I, I just couldn't rack my brain. Like, I've done some things, but nothing like – nothing worth the FBI coming to my door. But I, I'm still automatically guilty in my mind. And so I park my truck, and they meet me in their car. And they jump out and they have this little folder with them and they come out and they're like, Mr. Monty. I'm like, yep. I'm like, what's, what's going on? And they're like, we need, we, we want you to take a look at these photos and tell us if you know this person. And so I'm looking through these photos and it, it was some guy I'd never seen in my life. He, some hillbilly with like a mullet. And I'm like, and I'm thinking like, what the fuck is this? And then I started thinking, did they just give me some fake photos to look at so they can look at me? Like, you know, I'm, I'm going through all these things in my mind of like, what could be happening? So I'm looking through, looking through, and I peer up to look at them, and I look through, and I fold it back, and I'm like, I have no idea who any of these people are. And the guy's like, well, then, would you want to guess how this person has your identification card? And I'm like, what the fuck? And I I just stared at him for a minute, and I'm like, yeah, I got pickpocketed at the mall about three months ago. And then, like, I I just saw all the air deflate on this guy. He went, you know, and I'm like, and if you don't believe me, you can go check out the security cameras because they have it on camera. And I tried to get my ID back from the mall, but the cops said they couldn't give it back to me. And I felt all vindicated. Like, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. And, but but here's here's where, the, here's where the the cerebral part kicked in. I thought about that all day. Like, that was so crazy. I'm like, these guys thought that I was like some international criminal or something. They thought I was like this guy that was doing crazy things. And then the other part of my brain clicked like, I could be, I could have just lied to those guys. Maybe I did lie to those guys. And I started telling myself this other version of me. Like I, I could be, those guys are from the FBI and they thought I was an international mastermind. I could be, I'm probably smarter than those guys. I just, I went down this crazy rabbit hole of what I could be. And then I started thinking, I wonder what crimes I would do if I was an international master. My would probably be some sort of crazy money laundering scheme or something, you know? And I just made up this incredible story about myself, like what I could have been. And I believed it for a little bit. Like I just let myself run with it and I believed it. I'm like, I am, I, I have millions of dollars if I was that guy. And like, it sounds so crazy, but it fundamentally changed the way I saw myself because after that, it's like I gained this ability to envision myself as something else. And I've been able to use that same visualization and that actual believing that I could be this, and I was like, you know what? I could be a podcast. I could be this. I'm so much more than a truck driver. But in a way, it was a collapse of my worldview. It was a collapse of this identity that I had, and out of that became the the birthing of an imagination where I could see myself in any way, shape, or form. So I think that there's something to be said about visualizing and it's just an, it's an amazing way. I forgot how I freaking got on this point, but I think it was a version of mechanistic thinking versus the ability to imagine, the ability to see yourself after you've collapsed your worldview, that you can be anything. You can go out and help stuff right there. So I'm not sure exactly how I got on that tangent, you but it was really stories, fun to tell that story.
2: You said stories are uh, based on how we change stories, the stories we tell ourselves. It could It could be different yes yes yeah and i can
1: also imagine the, the sort of paranoia that sets in the moment that they call you and What yes. you mentioned is that you already picture yourself as guilty
0: yes i think a lot of
1: people um if you've ever been on uh, an airport i really hate airports <laughs> because i with with this what's uh, called border security uh what is the name yeah well whatever the guys that check all your luggage and stuff yes you you immediately feel like okay i'm carrying something that is not allowed so you start sweating and shit yeah like you're doing actually something wrong and that's indeed a way of the brain just telling you things and you're convincing yourself that it's the case
0: Is okay now is this is this this there seems to be this fear that we live under. That is this the society that we live in that, that relates back to the mechanistic thinking? Maybe this is what forces us to think so analytically, is this idea that we're always guilty. Hey, you got the wrong size water bottle. Hey, you're not wearing the right thing over here. Like It seems like there's always this layer of security. Even though it's invisible, it changes the way we think.
1: It might have something to do with it because... Um I, I, before I read Master and the Emissary, I was reading um, a bit of like French uh, French philosophy, like Baudrillard and uh, like things about hyper-reality. And hyper-reality fits perfect on the Master and his Emissary. And I'm, I'm, if someone is listening, uh, I'm looking forward to see a Baudrillard scholar read Ian McGilchrist and see if, if someone can synthesize the two. Because um, what he talks about is is if we start living in a world that's more and more shaped by the maps that we have in our heads. So this is also what McGilchrist is talking about. So the left hemisphere creates maps. And the territory is seen by the right hemisphere. Territory being physical reality. We create a map. Um, What the left hemisphere does, if the territory doesn't fit with the map, it changes the territory. Yeah. Instead of changing the map. Yeah. And so we're living uh, the, one part of the Anthropocene, which isn't a nice term, but <laughs> the world shaped by man is we are living in a world that is uh, um, is a representation of, or is physically the map that we have in our left hemisphere placed on reality. So a city is a virtual space, but an airport is as virtual as you can be. Because it's uh, there, here's a set of rules that you have to carry around and all these different types of artificial things that you're not allowed to carry. So, yes, it, it is a part of that part of our brain. So we, all these different non-natural things that we have to construct uh, concepts for languages and how they interrelate. We have to carry that around, which is completely virtual. So, yeah.
0: That's fascinating. Ranga, what do you want to say about that? I see you smiling over there. What are you thinking?
2: You said airport straight. I think uh, I just had all that uh, being done on me eight times. I think different flights, right? And uh, it's, it's, um, I understand why they do it, but it's also, it's very funnily crazy. Right? Like it's, they, like they try too hard to, I, I'm sure like there would have been, Bad stuff happening that they need to instill these measures, but uh, I think I have had points uh, where I've had a fear-based looking at life, and once I started changing that internally to a place of I don't know, maybe in that aspect, a place of apathy, like not not caring towards what this fear is telling me, because ninety-nine percent of the time that um, you know what my fear has responded to me was based on some conceptual game that was put in by someone else. It wasn't based on like, oh, there is fire, I shouldn't put my hand. I'm not talking about those kind of fear, right? It's more so with respect to concepts. Oh, you shouldn't be this way, you shouldn't do things this way, you shouldn't carry this. And so I start having a fear-based response rather than I don't care until something bad happens. (laughs) Like you wanna do you want to do anything, it's fine. (laughs) Right. And I, I see that you know we we kind of imagine things to be worse than how they are and once I stopped imagining things on this front I felt like man what a mental illness I got I keep thinking about things that you know (laughs) never happened right like there is so much that is happening and I keep imagining and I think it was draining for me at the beginning and then now it's more like I couldn't go back to the old self of like picturing how could it be like whatever it could be I'm you know let it be
0: yeah. That's it. It takes a lot of mental energy and I, I know I'm guilty of it all the time. Like it, and maybe this is the analytical part of the brain where, you know, you just start dissecting and dissecting and dissecting. Like what if this happened? And what if that happened? And if this happened, then that would happen. And it's, it's easy to go down that chain of events. And you know, it, it's almost like when you take a chicken and put its beak on the chalk line, it's stuck there. So too, do you get in a mode of thinking where you can get stuck? If you if you find yourself in that sort of rabbit hole, I got to turn my computer back on. Excuse me for a second.
1: There we go.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating to think about the way you think. I love what you said about the map and the territory. It's especially as someone who is out on the road all day, there's a lot of people that will come to me and say, look, you can go right here on this map. And I'm like, I can't. And they're like, the map says you can do this. Look right here on the map, George, go right on this road. And I'm like, that road was closed two years ago. Oh, you know, and it just it gives you the idea of we don't update our maps. And the map is not the territory. You know, there's tons of stories about, uh, you know, people that my dad told me a story. how He went on this motorcycle ride and they had this old map and they got to this place where, you know, uh, the, a tree had fallen down over this thing. And half the people got stuck because they could. not They're like, well, I guess we we'll have to turn around because they had this old map and they couldn't figure out how to go around it, you know, but. It, and maybe that's an idea of maybe your map when your map is destroyed that's an opportunity for you to explore the territory maybe more people need to have bad maps
1: yes <laughs> you have to become aware that your map is faulty and in this sense with the word map you can use as world view uh, i have a very nice quote from gilchrist from his new book uh and it's um at the end of part one And I think this this summarizes more or less the the importance of what you just uh, explained. It's very short. He says, in the modern Western world, we are constantly crashing and puzzled as to why, constantly faced with paradoxical outcomes to our actions, what particle physicist and quantum theorist David Bohm called sustained incoherence. We often find that we strive for something and achieve its precise opposite. Why is that? I suggest it is because our current dominant model of reality is mistaken. As a result, we badly need to rethink. And that more or less summarizes perfectly what the book is about, but also what I innately sensed. And that's why at a certain point you need to, uh, let's say you're lost. Uh, you're, um, he also uses this analogy, which I really like. Let's say you're uh, um you're a ship captain uh, and you have to navigate uh, a coral reef or a difficult uh, mangrove forest. And you have two ways two potential ways of seeing things. one being a map and the other being uh, your, your eyes sitting on the spot where you're at. But that will not tell you where your final destination is. And he says, if you only have access to one of those, which one would you use? very easy conclusion. It's like yeah we're using our actual eyes so we can navigate without crashing. But if you continue using the map the situation where we're in as a more global society. We're gonna we're gonna be crashing, we're already crashing, into a lot of different boundaries. Because we are not using our eyes, we're using our faulty
0: Yeah, that is well put. Especially when you have like five people using different maps. Like, you know, like we all have a different map, Like, we're all trying to get to the same spot using I don't know. Maybe this is, this is... Maybe it's all necessary. Maybe this is the collapse we need to be in order to be born again. And that's what makes me hopeful. Like, I, as much destruction is out there, I, I think that there can only be rebirth. And just like a regular birth is painful just like yeah, a regular birth there's a real chance a child dies in childhood mm-hmm. right yeah. so too is there a real chance that there is a, a huge tragedy that happens before and I think people are right to be aware are right to be skeptical are right to be alarmed like this is a this is a it's, it's a chance for a miracle but it's also a chance for destruction I, I think that what McGill is pointing out is a path that can at least begin to awaken people to some areas we've gone wrong and we can focus on those ideas and we can at least begin to see with our eyes and the
1: big problem is by is five, five different maps uh, I would say with the, with, I like the analogy that's also why I it, because he says that at a certain point at a certain point, you have such a high saturation of sign in the which replaces replaces the actual character. Is like, as we're going through the 21st sort of, well, century, as physically replacing physical whole field, our individual field. So we're like, turning any wild space, we're turning into a managed space. Well, I live in the Netherlands. The entirety of the Netherlands is mapped and uh, managed also nature let's say you get to this space where um yeah he both are calls it hyper real that the physical real disappears because the physical reality or what, what was before that reality that's um uh, yeah we we supplanted with our uh, with our strange models of different different symbols and words that don't map to anything anymore And so instead of five guys with different maps, we have 7 billion people with different maps. And we have internet, which also is um, exacerbating or accelerating the generation of new maps or uh, the specialization of these maps. So you get, and also you have convergence. So it's not all bad. But for me, it was also like you mentioned, like, is there a positive note? I think McGilchrist also uses this. If you, if you push long enough to one direction, you end up, become, end up becoming the complete opposite of the thing that you're attempting to do. And I kind of hope that, or if I have some hope on this sort of the hyper real state and the post-modern condition is that if we go further and further into this accelerated madness of all these different maps, then faster and faster people will figure out like okay this this is not working at all they'll crash and then get to the position where they start opening their eyes and then let's use the 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 meme like touch grass uh, then you start start making sense together again and then we can actually start seeing the reality without one of these artificial maps so.
0: yeah that's really well put i i I like the that idea of pushing through to the other side and and getting past this idea of uh, you know one side automatically if you go far enough if you go far enough out on the right you end up on the left right it's almost like a magnet how that how it goes around in like a I forgot what they call that but yeah it's fascinating to think about that as as the world in which we live I wonder like how much is virtual would you consider virtual reality to be a map
1: as in, as in, like uh, Oculus, that kind of stuff. Yeah, or, yeah,
0: or even, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I think it's probably like a, another deepening of um, this sort of left hemispherical way of creating,
2: uh, what it creating must... maps. The prison is even deeper to escape out of.
1: Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like uh, Plato's cave. And then, so yeah. you, you, oh, I stand in the sunlight, but it's, it's, you got, the, you got the Oculus Rift on. It's the yeah. artificial sunlight. It's a shit. It's another cave.
0: <laughs> that's what Mark Zuckerberg should have called Meta Plato's Cave.
1: Like, <laughs> <laughs> Plato's Cave 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it,
0: isn't it interesting that they tried to bring out this world of virtual reality and it just failed? Like, it, that's exactly what you just spoke about when you talked about how we're moving faster, faster into everybody having these maps and then everybody crashing. Like, here's people that invested billions of dollars into this augmented reality and just failed. Like, that's a sign of like, hey, this doesn't work. You know,
2: maybe we should be moving away from this. Why do you think it failed? I'm sorry? Why, why do you say it failed?
0: Well, I, I think that they had put I think that on a recent interview they had talked about moving away from the metaverse, not that meta as Facebook failed, but their idea of the metaverse as if you know this idea of how crypto was supposed to go in and you could you could sell these digital covers and you could have a digital store that sold widgets to characters in gaming universes you know i'm not I don't know a whole lot about it, but I did read quite a bit about like um you know the world of people buying virtual property in virtual games and you could sell virtual food to virtual people and sell them virtual weapons like I, like in some ways it's inc- it's so imaginative and beautiful and fantastic but in other ways it's just it's nothing you know and I don't I don't know that you how long you can live in a world of nothing so I, th- I think that that's what what I was trying to say about it failed what do, do you think that maybe it hasn't failed
2: I think uh just a temporary setback but i, I think it will go grow stronger and you know as you see it right like right now as we are going forward into the future i don't see the world as a very <clears throat> fair place it's it's like it's a very uh, survival of the fittest kind of thing here it's not about physical strength it's about more of a mental game and what you're born into and what you're born with and with money being you know the currency instead of being loved. So because of that, it's a very unfair place to exist. And going forward, people have two options. They could either play the game or distract themselves. Right. And playing the game is pretty much I, I think is going into the trap. Or, you know, abstain from action. But abstaining from action I do not see happening anytime soon. It's gonna take a lot of time, you know, a lot lot of suffering to get ourselves from abstaining into this, you know, um superficial thing they have created so-called reality right so in in that sense people will first choose distraction over you know um, actual suffering so any kind of distraction is going to be awesome it doesn't matter you know you're able to identify that uh, as much as cool it could be to sell virtual things to virtual people and so on for some people it is the reality they live in that's it Right? And there are different dimensions of reality and they would rather do that than live here and you know, suffer. So I could get myself because the brain is amazing. it, it just wants to keep living. It, it has no other purpose than to live. Life is just running towards more life, multiplicity and it, it doesn't have any um, you know objective goal or it, it doesn't work towards happiness, it doesn't work towards anything. It just needs to survive. So, oh yeah, if I get trapped myself in virtual reality, I could stay alive for ten more years. Yeah, I'm gonna choose that because in the real world, I might die because of sadness. You know, not not right. actually, but whatever idea we have, uh, the ego self dies. So I would rather choose this path, which is you know uh, the illusionary happiness. But if we, I I see it as a very positive thing because if we can get more people to see that way, right? This this virtual reality is illusion. also translate to most of the real world suffering right it it might that's how I see it like once we have a perception towards uh, uh you know a lower dimension of reality where we are able to observe that oh it's it's an illusion why are you getting yourself you know caught into this right maybe it might be a gateway to realizing wait am i caught in one of those right maybe it all works you know the unfolding of time <laughs> Well, that's that's my way of seeing karma. I've tried to um you know, one thing you asked me, being born in Eastern thing, they you know, add this concept of karma a lot. But so again, with seven billion people and seven billion maps, seven billion different definitions was there for karma. And most of it is like, oh, karma is like you do good, good comes to you. You do bad, bad comes to you. And you know, it's it's the most fundamental mistake in understanding karma. But I cannot explain what karma is, but the natural unfolding of you know when you're able to open your eyes, right? Like you can never ask someone to open their eyes. They're if they're not ready for it, they're not ready for it. They, they finish that set of sequences where they're like, oh wait, I can't repeat this loop one more time, right? And that that path. So in that sense, I think we are. It can happen. People. We we had people to one year back sell NFTs, right? It's a it's just a greater full theory and it's it's just that, that I can find one more fool and get money out of him. That's that's the only idea. It has no inherent value. I I never saw a point in digital art. Like digital music, I see um. I see I see the thing, but digital art, it never made sense to me. if you could copy something, right? Wh- why would you own it? Like how? Uh, what is the term of owning it? There is no. It's 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 crap. I do not simply see owning something. There is a I don't know how that works but these non fungible tokens have this identity that makes it original original by who who is saying that if i call it fake does it become fake <laughs> this thing is based on a story that i just believe there is one more fool who believes it too deeply right for him nft is going to be the religion once he does that i can sell it after him mm-hmm. so we are we are living in a world where that is happening so we are is I, I i have a quest too at home i don't use it much but I find it very immersive. I find it also helpful in so many things. Like I, I see it playing a role uh, in mental health for sure, right? Like there are uh, so many. There was one study. Uh, it wasn't with much data set, but it said that you know VR could take people into the borderline psychedelic mindset. And I definitely think if you know enough people come together and work towards such a product, it's completely deliverable, right? It was really immersive. When I was there, like, you know, I I used it to play table tennis and (laughs) really didn't have to go anywhere else. And, you know, 20 minutes into the game, I'm sweating and I have the mic connected to that guy. It doesn't matter where he is. And I saw the beautiful thing behind it. I didn't see it as a very uh, evil thing. Right. Um, But I could also see going into what you said, like, you know, staying there, buying virtual stuff and selling it virtually. And. The question comes what's the point right <laughs> eventually if it comes to our life to ask what's the point it will be nice yeah it's
0: fascinating when you say that like I-, I could see sometimes when i think about virtual reality from that point of view it just brings about the absurdity of my life like it's really you know what i mean like i can sit here and talk about this guy's selling a fictional product to a fictional thing but then I look at my life, and I'm like, okay, I'm just driving this truck and delivering these products to people that don't really need them. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of the way of seeing the world. It's kind of the way – no matter if you see your world in the virtual life or you see the virtual life in your world, like it's a great way to see the absurdity of life. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny.
1: The absurdity of modern life. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's but
1: maps crazy. on maps on maps. <laughs> and- yeah. And so, so the, the the that's indeed also what I got from uh, Ranga, what you were talking about, and what you just said is you can you can picture it as a good thing, even if even if you picture the technology in a moralistic view, as in it's evil, or there are ways of looking at this, uh, then more of it will. Clearly, make it more and more prominent in everyday life, which will offer the chance for more and more people to really crash with it, and then have like a like an opening, uh, a, a, mo- a potential moment of opening happen, where they can build up this other worldview, where they can connect with themselves in a different way, or start seeing sort of the revolutionary potential or whatever. So, yeah.
0: Oh, it makes me want to like, in some ways, this may be dark, but it kind of want to make like, when I look at it from that level, you can almost see the positive aspect of like just wanting to force people into a crash. I know that's the wrong way to do it, but like, you could see how people are like, yeah, I'm helping out by crashing this thing. You know?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah really I, read, I, I read a bit and I think this is like the corner of accelerationalism, all this type of philosophy. I was reading somewhat into it, and I kind of understand, but I I kind of gave up on sort of top-down political any means of doing things. So yeah, it's fun to think about. Yeah. It's fun to argument uh, find argumentation about, but I'm not in a position to accelerate anything. So yeah. I might as well not pay any attention to these kind of things. So.
0: Yeah. Gentlemen, I, I I have to tell you this is really really fun for me, and I really enjoy these conversations. And it's unfortunate that I have to go live the absurdity of becoming a truck driver at Christmas time right now. But I got I got to check out, and um, this is really fun though. I, I if it wasn't for conversations like this, I would feel empty in a lot of ways. So I want to say thank you to both of you for coming in and talking and helping me get through my day and, and allowing me to express some ideas that I have and enlightening me with some of the ideas that you have. And I, I think we'll be back again. And I, I really like this format of us three people coming together and just amplifying each other's ideas and meeting new people. And it's really, really rewarding. And it's some of the, it's some of the best things I do in my life is getting to meet and talk to people. So but before we go, Simon, what do you got coming up uh, Where can people find you and what are you excited about?
1: Ooh, uh, <laughs> what i've got coming up for my personal life uh, is i'm i'm trying to finish the finish my dissertation and that's once that's done then i'm, I'm moving forward to other things um i'm excited about um what what i excited about yeah a lot of things actually uh i'm excited about uh exploring more my my coaching uh, coaching business Uh, also incorporating more with the psychedelic uh, microdosing and these kind of things luckily i'm in the netherlands so it's legal so uh, these kind of things i'm doing so it's nice um and also in the future i'm i'm potentially going to see if i can find a way to incorporate like the the mcgill chris type of work uh, and match that with education so to Let's say bring bring life back into life sciences. That's that's the thing. So yes,
0: that is amazing. I I think that's a that's a that's a beautiful
1: maxim right there. And I I,
0: I hope. What, what is your dissertation on? If you don't mind me asking.
1: Uh, horizontal gene transfer in uh, lactic acid bacteria. So in lactococcus lactis. Very specialized, <laughs> very specific. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: are you are you gonna bring some life back into that particular field? Is that like?
1: <laughs> no, no. I think uh, I think my time in the lab is over.
0: Fascinating, Ranga. What? What? Where can people find you? What do you got coming up? And what are you excited
2: about, my friend? I like judge, even though I give simply no answer to that question. I like as enough to ask that whatever we were talking about life is absurdly pointless and i'm gonna go back to becoming couch potato but (laughs) i'm there on linkedin (laughs) yeah nice
0: what what um simon ranga has a podcast and it would not surprise me the least if you end up on his podcast in the next few weeks here so um for me what i got coming up i i have a uh, let me see sunday i am meeting with a few people and we are going to talk about spiritual reality versus virtual reality. And I want to thank both of you because I'm going to be able to incorporate a lot of what we talked about into that particular talk on this coming Sunday. Um, fun. Yeah. It's, it, I'm really looking forward to it and it's going to be a good time. And um, I, got other, I got some other great podcasts coming up. I'm interviewing a gentleman that has r- written a rebuttal to Sam Harris's book about uh, free, the argument against free will.
1: Yeah.
0: interesting. Yeah, so it's going to be a really interesting topic Um, Yeah, that's what I You can find me here on the True Life Podcast And that's what we got for today, ladies and gentlemen I, I hope you enjoyed Simon and Ranga And myself, we really enjoyed the conversation Reach out to everybody And gentlemen, stay on the line for a minute I'm going to hang up here, but I wanted to talk to you briefly afterwards So ladies and gentlemen, right. thank you for joining the True Life Podcast, aloha Aloha everyone